You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello everyone and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics, and today is no exception. I've written a blog recently about why we haven't been able to do a show lately. There's been a whole lot going on here, and everything's had to take priority. But to show that this show still is a priority, let me tell you something about what's going on here. Something very good has happened to us. We've started. We've been attending a church for a few months now, a new one. And someone there heard that I had really wanted to give my wife a Nintendo Switch for Christmas. And naturally, I'm broke. So that seemed like no chance whatsoever. Except this person decided to go out and buy us one with a couple games. So we are extremely pleased right now. I've got it set up. It's running. It's sitting in our living room, and I'm here doing a show, and I'm a gaming fanatic, so if your thing of a show isn't a priority, well, take that into consideration here. Today, we've got on Dr. Hugh Ross, who I think could be the most repeated guest we've had on here. He is an astronomer and best-selling author. He travels the globe speaking of the compatibility of advancing scientific discoveries with the timeless truths of Christianity. His organization, Reasons to Believe, is dedicated to demonstrating via a variety of resources and events that science and biblical faith are allies, not enemies. Dr. Ross, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. Now, normally at this point, I'd ask you to tell a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing. But your book kind of covers that. So let's just leap into a book here. Now, I'm going to be <laughs> straightforward if I can of start. When I first got this book from the mail, it was a bit of a surprise. And it looked to me like it was going to be a basic apologetics work. And I was thinking, well, Dr. Ross writes good material, but I'm probably not going to enjoy this one as much. On the contrary, this could be one of your most powerful ones you've ever written. I think, and I was consistently surprised by it. Now, someone who's uh, picking up this book and expecting to get the usual foray of scientific arguments and such, they're going to be disappointed, aren't they? Well, it is in Chapter 3. I give a quick summary of what I consider to be the best scientific evidences to present to people who have not been to church, Mm -hmm. haven't read the Bible, and basically say, here's step one to getting equipped with good reasons to share with your non-Christian friends and associates. But yeah, it's just one chapter, uh, but everything there is backed up by 22 of our books. Mm-hmm. Now, you also wrote this one with your wife, who had a board meeting, so she couldn't join us, right? That's right. Mm-hmm. Why, why did you choose to write this one together? Well... Uh, she's been editing my books uh, for uh, many years, and 
she knew I was going to be talking about uh, how my autistic uh, spectrum tendencies uh, gave me an unusual uh, pathway to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And she said, we need a neurotypical person to work with you to make sure that this doesn't sound so extraordinary, no one's going to believe it. So uh, she, she helped me with that. And also, I wanted to include a number of her stories of uh, how she, you know, she was raised in a Christian home, I wasn't. Mm-hmm. And so you're getting two different perspectives on how to apply First Peter 3.15 in your life. And so I included a few of her stories. I also included some stories of people uh, that were skeptical of the claims that I was making that, hey, if you prepare good reasons, can present them with gentleness, respect, and a clear conscience, you'll see God doing outstanding miracles to bring non-Christians across your path that are prepared to hear and respond to those good reasons. So I purposely included uh, stories from people that are not scientists, uh, people who are very skeptical of my claims, but I challenge them, and you get to read their stories too. Mm. I think that includes even one of your partners over there, Ken Sampras, who's been on our show right before. Yeah. Now, let's, uh, let's get into the book here a bit. Now, you've said you talked about your difficulties of being on the spectrum. Now, for those interested, we do have a show where you talked about life on the spectrum. But what does it mean, if you were going to give someone a brief synopsis of what it means to have Asperger's autism, what would you say? Well, let's say everybody in the spectrum is different from everybody else in the spectrum, so don't put us all in the same box. Mm-hmm. But some of the things we share in common, we have great difficulty reading body language. Uh, our emotions are delayed. A lot of people think we have no emotions. That's not true. They're just delayed by a couple of hours. So uh, I, I'm not able to respond quickly to my own emotions, and I have great difficulty reading other people's emotions. Uh, thankfully, I'm uh, married to someone who's neurotypical, and she's been working with me for the past four decades on uh, how to be able to communicate uh, to people that are not on the spectrum. I mean, part of my problem was once I got into uh, academia, I was around people who were like me. So I thought I was ordinary. I wasn't really working on uh, my weaknesses, uh, but uh, since being married to Kathy, She, for example, has helped me to be able to speak to audiences because the first time I got engaged in public speaking, I would just stare at the floor and talk. I wouldn't look at anybody. And she was the one that said, you'll probably get a better reception if you actually look at people in the audience. So I tried doing that, but that was a struggle, too, because I found myself just staring at one person for the entire time. Probably her also. (laughs) Well, it was I picked a guy in the audience. And she said, you made that man very uncomfortable because you never took your eyes off of him. And so then I started saying, okay, what I need to do is look at different people different times. That's what she told me. Then she said, your eyes are darting all over the place. I said, no, wait a minute. If I think too much about where my eyes are supposed to be, I'm going to lose my place in my talk. And so people wonder why my talks are so visually intensive is to prevent me from losing my place in the talk. I know people like the visuals, but it's also for my benefit as well, because it's very difficult for me to control my body and think about what I'm being presenting at the same time. Yeah, that, that's probably a way that we're different on the spectrum, because 
I am actually teaching in the projects class at my church tomorrow, and this time, for some reason, I decided to print out an outline, or whatever, right, when someone else is going to be printing it. And I normally don't do that, because once I do that, I find myself married to the outline, as it were, and everything comes across as stale. So that, that's probably one way we're very different. Well, I, I, I have that same issue, mm-hmm. but what I do is I make it a point to change uh, a talk. I never give the same talk twice. Mm-hmm. I always make adjustments, and that way it comes across as fresh, even though, quote, I really am following a script. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, that's how I try to keep things uh, looking fresh. And again, I want to give credit to my wife. She's the one that's been helping me uh, communicate uh, much more better than I was many decades ago. And so, but she also says that uh, that was part of my way of getting into evangelism. Mm -hmm. I was able to ask people uh, very straightforward questions and nobody got offended because they could see I didn't have ulterior motive. Mm -hmm. I mean, the thing I think you notice about people on the spectrum uh, they have a very great difficulty lying or deceiving. Mm-hmm. You can see right through them. And so I gave up trying to lie or deceive because I knew it didn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also causes people to trust me relatively quickly. And there's actually stories in the book where I talk about total strangers at airports leaving all their luggage with me, mm-hmm. out, often run errands, and sometimes even leaving their children with me. Yeah. There's just uh, this one lady just figured out, hey, here's a guy I can trust. And she left me with her four children. I was worried she would never come back, but she did. So, (laughs) yeah, it it might be something like an acquired skill because I'm someone who doesn't lie, but I can certainly trick someone if I want to. Uh, my, My wife knows, for instance, on April Fool's Day, do not believe a single word that I say because it is worth it for the trick. Well, that's where we're different because I'm not able to trick people. They can see right through me. Well, I liked also what you said about uh, being surrounded by people in a workplace just like you. Because I remember when we found out about you being on the spectrum, it was you were speaking at the Project X conference, I think, in Charlotte. And my father-in-law, being Mike Lacona, we told him about how we'd heard that many people in the astrophysicist and astronomy community and such were on the spectrum. And so he sat down next to you and said, hey, do you know anyone who has Asperger's that you work with? And you said, I have Asperger's. Right. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, when I, when I was at Caltech, I remember one conversation. There was eight of us standing in a circle talking about a research mm-hmm. all of us just stared at the floor mm-hmm. uh, you know there was one gentleman uh, a professor there he could not tolerate anybody being in his office mm-hmm. he could give a lecture uh, but whenever I walk into his office he would just say get out because mm-hmm. uh, that was just way too uncomfortable for him yeah I remember so, I remember when I first interviewed him on this topic and I, I brought up what so many people ask about, the Big Bang Theory. Not the scientific idea of a show when you said they had to tone that down a lot for us because we are even nerdier than that. That's correct. <laughs> now, let's get into your growing up here and such because you didn't grow up in a Christian home. And obviously today, anyone can tell you're very intellectually superior to a lot of people out there and such. But growing up, that wasn't always a perception, was it? 
Well, my parents knew that I was intelligent, but none of their friends did. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, being on the spectrum, I quickly figured out if I talk, I'm going to get myself into trouble because I just wouldn't think about how my words would come across. Mm-hmm. And I was very blunt and direct. So I quickly figured out at age three and four, I'm better off just keeping my mouth shut. And my mm-hmm. parents said that uh, after that, I limited myself to just three words, yes, no, and cookie. <laughs> and pretty far were those three words mm-hmm. <laughs> going up. <clears throat> but I remember entering public school, and you know, part of my autism too is uh, when I was young, I didn't have fine motor skills. So I couldn't make a pencil. Uh, I couldn't get a pencil to make numbers or letters. Mm-hmm. Since I wasn't talking, I was literally failing every subject in grade one. Uh, you know, I couldn't because the way you could prove you could read, you just stood up in front of everybody and read aloud. Well, that was something that was very uncomfortable for me to do, and my language development was uh, very much retarded, um, and I couldn't, you know, prove I could do the math. All my parents' friends said that I was uh, uh, retarded and needed to be put into an institution. I remember the comeback of my parents. They said, you know, uh, Hugh does has been doing experiments on his own since he was two. Uh, he may not be talking. Uh, he may not have, uh, you know, body control. But uh, we don't think he deserves to be in an institution. Mm-hmm. But all my friends were insisting that I was mentally handicapped and it needed to be put into an institution. And when I got into public school, um, the, the teachers there were very concerned about me because I was at the bottom of the class. I was failing every subject. The only thing they said is that I was well-behaved because uh-huh. uh, I was so quiet. Um, but then six weeks before the end of the school year, uh, my parents moved out of their rented house and bought a condemned house that they intended to rebuild. So I got a new grade one teacher and that new grade one teacher was able to see frustration on my face. And so she held me after school one day. This is like two weeks before the end of the school year and said, I'm going to ask you questions about these 30s books on my desk. You don't have to say a word. Just shake your head for no and nod your head for yes. And she figured out I'd read those books. So she told me, even though you're failing all your classes, I'm going to see if I can get the principal's permission to pass you into grade two. And somehow she taught the principal into getting me into grade two, even though my report card said I was failing every single subject. Mm -hmm. I got into grade two and I was in the last chair in Canada at that time. They sat you according to your academic ranking in the class. So I was in the very last chair. All the kids were teasing me, saying I was a class dummy. And it was at that time I said, there's no way I'm going to be in the last chair by the end of the school year. Uh-huh. And so I would go home, and I would literally practice for two or three hours a day after school how to make a pencil, make letters and numbers. And about halfway through grade two, I could make letters and numbers, not as fast as the other children, but I could do it. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to start talking even if I get myself into trouble. So I made it a point to start talking. And uh, I remember every test we had, I would move up three or four chairs. And by the end of grade two, I was in the first chair. Yeah. 
I think for some that's going to make this an interesting interview is our experiences, we can go back and forth with them and such, because I remember when I was growing up, it was said that you needed a translator to understand what I was saying. Immediate family could understand me. Everyone else, it was a lost cause. And I was the first one on the spectrum to go through public schools in Knox County, from what I understand. Although I did have to go in transition instead of going straight from kindergarten to first grade. And for me, writing has always been something difficult. But my handwriting is always illegible. You, you can't understand it at all. And for me, when I was in school, schoolwork was often extremely boring because it was just so easy. And my whole goal was see if I can do it faster than anyone else, which I usually could. So that was how it was for me growing up there. Well, I had the same issue. I got so bored with school, I just decided to uh, do... Well, I got into astronomy when I was seven, Mm -hmm. and uh, then I began to plan how I could build a telescope. I was in a very poor family uh, in a poor neighborhood, so I basically collected beer bottles and pop bottles uh, that were left behind by the drunks in our neighborhood. Mm. And, you know, you could cash them in for two cents a bottle, so I did that for several years and eventually got enough money that I could buy a telescope mirror and then began to build a telescope mm-hmm. and began to do research on variable stars uh, in the Orion Nebula and other uh, nebulae where new stars were forming. So, But that was just because I was so bored with school. I said, I'm going to have to learn on my own. So I would go to the public library and bring home five books on physics and astronomy and then begin to work on this research project. And it continued that even into the first two years of university, because the first two years of university uh, were also pretty rote. Mm. Uh, But by third and fourth year, uh, my university courses really begin to uh, get interesting. And so I just abandoned my astronomical uh, research and began to dive myself into my physics studies, then went on to get a master's and a PhD in astronomy. Mm-hmm. Now, that, I think, is an advantage you did have, Matt. You found your academic love early on. I didn't find apologetics until I got to Bible college, eventually. And for me, I was the student, I tell people that. I mean, my father and I said he makes me sick when you hear about that. I go to school, and I'd pretty much get A's in everything, come home, play video games all night long, go to sleep, Studying wasn't really a part of my life at all. It was just because, like we've said, the schools did not provide challenge whatsoever. And I remember going and reading a lot of the library, but most of what I read was usually fiction, such as going through all the Hardy Boys mysteries. And then after that, I went through all the Nancy Drew ones. Yeah, they were written for girls, but I didn't care. I won mysteries. So that was pretty much what I was doing. And such, but you're you're quite fortunate. You did find what you wanted to do with your life early on. Yeah, and I tell parents who have autistic children that have normal or high IQ, uh, expose them to advanced material and different subjects, and mm-hmm. find out what they really are gifted to do. Because the people on the spectrum who have normal or high IQ, they typically have a special gift 
that's unique uh, relative to the rest of the uh, neurotypical population. And so find out what that is. And, you know, the, the easy way is expose your child uh, to content that's, say, eight grade levels above him or her and see what catches their interest. Yeah, there's a, a funny story that I was once helping my sister with her math homework, which was geometry, except my sister was in high school and I was in elementary school at the time. Yeah, I. what was the neat thing I liked about my Canadian education? When we got to geometry, for example, they didn't teach us to memorize the theorems. We derived them all from first principles. Mm. And that was really a fun way to learn geometry, basically to do it the same way the Greeks came up with it. And, you know, it really sticks, and it made it fun for people. And uh, likewise, uh, you know, my Canadian education, they did that with all the math subjects. Although I tell you, the algebra stuff was pretty boring for me. Mm. But when I got to university, I got into the really fun part. That was great. I remember when I was in high school, geometry was actually a subject that was difficult for me. And looking back, I think I know why. Because it wasn't because our teacher had this strange requirement. She wanted us to take notes, and it was a requirement, and we would be graded on our notes as well. And towards the end, I thought, you know, I'm not doing best. Forget the notes. I'm just going to stop taking them. That's when things started to make sense, because when I was taking notes, I couldn't focus on what was being taught there. Once I was able to stop taking notes, I was able to focus. And that's why, honestly, I never take notes for class. It distracts me too much. Well, I remember we were taught geometry. is like no textbooks, nothing. Uh, the teacher put the problem in front of us and said, solve it. Mm-hmm. And gave us no hints on how to solve it. But, you know, half the people in the class were able to solve it right there. So, mm-hmm. I mean... So, now you're, you're growing up here, but you've said religion was not a part of your growing up, right? It wasn't, but I tell stories in the book where I got brief exposures to religion. I mean, for example, there was one time my parents uh, dragged us along on a shopping trip in downtown Vancouver, and there was a street preacher. I heard maybe 15 seconds of his preaching before my parents dragged me away from this, quote, Bible nut. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that 15 seconds stuck. And, uh, you know, then later on, it made me curious when I first picked up a Bible. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and when was this when you first picked one up? Not until I was 17. I mean, uh, I was not convinced that there was a God. My parents were insistent that there was no God. Mm. They did believe that the Bible gave good teaching, about how to live a moral life, uh, but they did not believe in eternal life or, or that, uh, you know, God was a supernatural being. Not at that time. Um, late in life, they both became Christians in their 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, not at that time. Um, but it was my astronomy that persuaded me that the universe had a beginning. And I said, if there's a beginning to the universe, there must be a cosmic beginner. And I began to search for that cosmic beginner. Starting at age 16, I first was reading the uh, great philosophers, in particular Immanuel Kant and Rene Descartes, uh, especially Immanuel Kant, since he's considered the father of a modern-day cosmology. But he had the wrong concepts of space and time, and so I put that aside. And at age 17, 
I began to go through the world's holy books. Mm-hmm. And when I tell people I didn't really get to know Christians until I showed up at Caltech at age 27 to begin my postdoctoral research, I did get to see two Christians from 30 feet away when I was 11 years old. And these were two businessmen that came to our public school and put two boxes on our teacher's desk, didn't say a single word. But in those boxes were Gideon Bibles. So from age 11 onwards, I had a Gideon Bible, but I didn't open it until I was 17. Mm -hmm. Not until I was convinced that the universe had a beginning and therefore a cosmic beginner, and not until I recognized that the other holy books were filled with things that were provably incorrect. I mean, I said, if God is communicating to us through a book, uh, it's going to be accurate in everything it says, and what it says is going to be compatible with what we know to be true about the universe and Earth's life. And so I was putting these different holy books to the test. And what really impressed me about the Gideon Bible, I found passages that actually commanded the reader to put everything to the test and hold fast to that which is good. And actually showed me step by step how to put things to the test. And so after I would read the Bible between midnight and two in the morning, almost every night I did that for about an 18-month period, literally trying to test everything I was reading uh, on every page of the Bible. And uh, by the time I got to Revelation 22, I realized I'm not able to find a single provable error or contradiction in this book. Moreover, I found hundreds of places where the Bible had predicted future scientific discoveries and future historical events. And I said, that's only possible if this book is inspired by the one that did all the deeds. So it was at age 19, I signed my name in the back of the Gideon Bible, giving my life to Jesus Christ. And I tell that story and always be ready, because that 18-month study uh, persuaded me that if I were to become a Christian, it meant that I had to commit to sharing my Christian faith uh, with people I knew. And I was at the University of British Columbia at that time, and I was well aware that if I became public about being a Christian, I was going to be in for a lot of ridicule and mockery. And so I hesitated to make that commitment, but finally I did. And uh, I knew that involved that I would have to go public uh, with what I committed my life to do and began to look for opportunities. Mm-hmm. And that kind of opens up the book story that if you prepared good reasons uh, for your hope in Jesus Christ, and if you can deliver them with a Christian demeanor, gentleness and respect, you'll see God bring people to you. And my first opportunity was with my best friend and lab partner. And uh, <clears throat> we were sitting down in an empty lecture hall one day, and he looked at me and says, Hugh, I can tell you want to talk but please let me talk first. I need to talk to somebody about God. Do you know anybody in this campus that knows anything about God? And that to a four-hour conversation. So it just showed me, hey, uh, God is partnering with us. He will prepare the way. And all these things I was afraid of, the persecution, etc., it was there. But uh, God somehow was able to use that. And I actually tell a story in the book, of uh, a Caltech astrophysicist uh, 
who would mock me on a daily basis for what I would tell them was in the Bible and both my Christian faith. And uh, how that went on for over a year. Every day he would go through my office and you know ask me a question about the Bible or about Christianity and then just mock in front of the other astronomers everything I shared with him. But then there came a day when he walked into that uh, uh, coffee room at Caltech and said, I can no longer mock Hugh Ross. I can't mock the Bible because uh, last night I gave my life to Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And there was just silence in that copy room for the next 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. People were stunned that uh, he had made that kind of commitment. And he was only 32 at the time. Ten months later, he had a massive heart attack and died. But he died a follower of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And that's just one of many stories of, you know, skeptics, highly educated skeptics who are uh, mocking. And, uh, you know, God can use that. Uh, to bring them and others to faith in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a whole lot there to respond to and interact with. One of the things I'm thinking about right off is your story seems kind of similar about doing the investigation. It reminds me of some of what uh, Gary Habermas has told me about his story. I mean, aside from a scientific thing, but he struggled with doubt for quite a while. But yet I know that from him personally, that as a teenager... He was going through writers like Rudolf Bultmann and such and examining them. And sometimes he'd make notes on the side and say something like unsupported claim and such. And he looked at his notes later on, kind of compiled them all together and found they could have been acceptable as a master's thesis even. Yes. Yeah, Gary, Gary's quite a student of the word. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I admire his work and his books. Mm-hmm. And I also... Uh, have somewhere around I think a tape series of a conference that you did about who is the designer several years ago and I remember you talking about going to your classmates and saying I'm convinced there is a god which religious book has it right and they all were very eager to bring you for their religious books and the main one I remember is you talking about someone from a Baha'i faith who said that our religion brought forward all the great truths of the other religions and combine them together and how you went through and said no, it looks like you got all the mistakes of the other religions and combined them together. Yeah, and that young man wound up leaving the Baha'i faith as a result. So, But, uh, yeah, that was one of the uh, books I was able to rule out. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I literally went through the uh, Hindu Vedas, the Quran, the Buddhist commentaries, uh, the writings on which Baha'i is based, uh, Mormonism, in every single case, uh, even putting those books in the best possible mm-hmm. term of light, I found many provable errors, uh, false prophecies, contradictions, and I said, that's simply evidence uh, that they were written by a human being, not inspired uh, by the one that created the universe. Now, there could be someone listening to the show right now who's of the more skeptical mind, so you might be thinking, okay, I'm really not convinced of this. You went through the whole Bible in two years studying everything and didn't find a single provable contradiction. I mean, I can list you a whole lot of moral problems I have with the Bible, scientific problems, contradictions I find, historical inaccuracies. I mean, 
I, I'm not going to give a whole list, but I'm sure you've heard those kinds of things several times. What would you say to such a person who says, like, I can just open up my Bible and I can find these problems everywhere? Well, typically what I do when some skeptic brings that up, I says, well, show me one. And uh, they'll come up with something. And I said, well, you're not putting the text in the best possible interpretive light. You're putting it in the worst possible interpretive light. Mm-hmm. And I found that when skeptics show me, quote, a contradiction in the Bible, it's typically a failure to recognize that the Bible rounds numbers off. Mm-hmm. And so, say, it gets the value of pi wrong. And I said, well, it's giving it to you to one significant figure. And at one significant figure, it is accurate. Or they'll pick two texts where, you know, David is counting up the number of troops in the Israelite army. And uh, one rounds it off, the other one doesn't, or rounds it off to a different degree of numbers. Or I say, notice, two tribes of Israel left out of the uh, census here. You put those two tribes back in, you don't have a contradiction. Mm -hmm. And so... I do want to make it clear, however, that when I was reading the Bible during my late teenage years, there were lots of passages that I didn't understand. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't sure how to interpret those texts. Uh, but my point was I couldn't find any provable error or contradiction. I found possible errors, but no provable error. Mm-hmm. And when I see a possible error, I say, you know, let's study this and see what happens. Mm-hmm. I mean, any theological model, any scientific model, will have anomalies, things that apparently don't fit the model. Mm-hmm. And how to determine whether or not you've got a good interpretive model is what happens to those anomalies as you learn more about the subject. If the anomaly goes away, uh, then you've got a good model. If the anomaly gets bigger and more problematic, you've probably got the wrong model. And I also share people that when you resolve a problem or an anomaly in your interpretive model, it will typically expose several more anomalies that you weren't able to see. But those anomalies will be at a lower level of uh, being problematic. Mm -hmm. And that's just simply the consequence of the fact that we human beings don't know everything. Because Mm -hmm. we don't know and understand everything, there will be things that will appear to be anomalous or inconsistent. And so... You've probably heard atheists say that we Christians are simply uh, believing in the God of the gaps. The truth is, we are using gaps to test our model. It's what happens to the gaps that determines whether or not you've got a good interpretive model. If the gaps get less numerous and less problematic, you've got a good model. If they get more numerous and more problematic, you probably got the wrong model. It's what happens to the gaps that determines whether or not you've got a good model. And so I often uh, play the flip card, what about the nature of the gaps? If you're trying to interpret everything from a naturalistic perspective, what's happening to the gaps uh, in in that particular model? And we've written a number of books at Reasons to Believe, demonstrating that if you look at the scientific history of the past 50 years, the naturalistic gaps have gotten far more numerous Mm -hmm. and much problematic. You know, something that I think is interesting is so many skeptics I encounter talk about how science is the ultimate arbiter of truth and such. And, you know, of course, I'm not anti-science, but I am very much anti-scientism. 
and they'll say, your religion has it that when you come, you just believe everything based on an authority, but science says, hey, let's go find the answers. And I say, yeah, it looks to me, actually, that you can't do the exact opposite. If someone says something against Christianity, you'll go and believe it whole farther without, without ever testing it or exploring it and such. And when you find something that you think is a problem in Christianity, you don't go and explore any further. You just stop right there. So why is it noble to do that with science, but it's not noble to do that with religion? Well, that's interesting because when I engage skeptics, I, I basically uh, say, hey, you're not skeptical enough. You yep. need to be more skeptical mm-hmm. and basically point out to them that the Bible actually commands us to be skeptical, not cynical, but to be skeptical. Mm-hmm. A skeptic is one who will change their model mm-hmm. in light of new evidence that shows that they need to change their model. A cynic is someone who's not going to change their mind no matter what. Uh, evidence is brought forward. Mm-hmm. So, from a Christian perspective, God commands us to be skeptics, but not to be cynics. Yeah, it's my belief that if the evidence will not change your mind, your position is probably not based on evidence to begin with. Yes, well, I mean, uh, a couple few months ago, I did a debate in Britain uh, with um, uh, Peter Atkins. He's a well-known chemistry professor mm-hmm. at Oxford. All of us had to study his textbooks when we took undergraduate chemistry. A well-known atheist. And he kept saying throughout the debate, we have to base our beliefs on evidence. Uh, but when he was asked the question, what scientific evidence would uh, cause you to uh, uh, abandon your atheism and become a theist? And he basically claimed that there wouldn't be any evidence that would actually motivate him to do that. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, I was sharing all kinds of things that that would cause me to abandon my Christian faith if the evidence was secure. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we were to prove that there's no beginning to the universe, if we were to prove that we humans are no different from the animals, you only differ from them by degree and not fundamentally in kind, in my opinion, that would be catastrophic to the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. But evidence does tell us that the universe has a beginning, and that we humans really are different. Was this debate on unbelievable, or was it something else? It was on unbelievable, and mm-hmm. uh, you can uh, watch it on YouTube for free. Mm-hmm. So, well, let's talk now about how you, you go beyond Christianity. First off, something I'd like to get is you said you didn't meet a Christian for. Quite a long time, I think. If you drive around most anywhere, at least here in America, you can find a church pretty much everywhere. So, how was it you weren't finding Christians? Well, after I became a Christian, I actually went to several churches uh, trying to find Christians. But you know, when you become a Christian on your own, uh, where you don't know Christians, mm-hmm. it's not easy to find a church that's filled with Bible believing uh, people. Mm-hmm. And uh, most of the churches in Canada, they're either a cult or they're filled with people that don't believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God. Mm-hmm. And so the churches I was checking out today, I know how to find good churches in Canada. Mm-hmm. Part of the problem is Canada has far fewer Christians per capita than the United States. And the ones that do exist in Canada typically form their own suburbs outside the large cities. 
So, for example, I discovered decades after I became a Christian that there's a big suburb outside of Vancouver that's more than 80% uh, evangelical Christians. But where I was living, it was less than 1%. Mm-hmm. So I was not uh, finding that kind of contact. When I came to Caltech, I met a Christian astronomer there, and uh, he said, it's different here in the United States. Mm-hmm. He says, the Christians are everywhere, they're more numerous. And he says, he gave me a list of six outstanding churches in the Pasadena area. Uh, so I checked out those six churches. They were everything that my friend Dave said they were. And I wound up uh, picking one of those six churches. I picked the church uh, out of the six that was most committed uh, to reaching non-Christians for faith in Christ. Because I wanted to be in a church uh, that was really committed, as I was, uh, to share my faith with uh, non-Christians. The interesting thing was, this is the very first church I ever got involved in. And uh, seven months after I started attending, uh, they uh, had me on the pastoral staff to train people how to use science to bring people to faith in Christ. Mm -hmm. Partly it's because the church I was attending is between Caltech and the Jeff Propulsion Laboratory. So it's like there are a lot of engineers and scientists uh, in the community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm finding it interesting about reaching our churches and such, because like I said, at the start, we found a church here and they're very generous I mean, like we got a switch sitting in there right now because this church is so generous and the church is also paying for my wife to get some dialectical behavior therapy and we'd only just start coming and next tomorrow i'm going to be teaching a basic apologetics class a pastor asked me to fill it in for him i said you want me to keep doing what you're doing this day he said no i want you to do something on apologetics and to me, this is something wonderful. It's, you know, the dream. But some people might be surprised. You know, it's very understandable you'd want to reach non-Christians, as we should. But, geez, you, you're on the spectrum. And I know as someone on the spectrum, it is very difficult to initiate conversations. So how does that work? Well... Uh, I just ask people questions. I mean, one thing I've learned about human beings, they like to talk about themselves. Mm-hmm. So uh, if I'm sitting in an airport or on an airplane or if I'm in a grocery line or at a bank, um, I just ask people questions. And um, number one, I want to know what kind of non-Christian they are. Because uh, what I point out in the book is one size doesn't fit all. Uh, so don't think that you can come up with this uh, silver bullet evangelistic tool that's going to work in every case. And so step one for me, I want to learn as much as I can about the person I'm talking to to determine what kind of non-Christian they are, what are their barriers to faith, uh, what are their issues, and um, and then you know, I'll try to address them uh, on the issues that, that they bring up. And, uh, you know, the book is filled with stories of uh, those kinds of encounters. And um, the other thing is, you know, the promise there is God will bring people to you that are prepared to hear your good reasons. And so I make the point in the book, for example, that when I engage strangers on airplanes, half of the strangers I engage either have a Ph.D. in science or they got a doctorate in theology. 
And you and I both know that that doesn't make up 50% of the U.S. population, mm. much less than 1%. And so the question is, how come that, that that's my experience? Or like a friend of mine who came out of the Mormon faith, when he's engaging strangers, again, very high percentage of people uh, he engages are either Mormons or ex-Mormons. The whole point is God's Holy Spirit is engineering things. God's Holy Spirit knows uh, that I have a Ph.D. in uh, astronomy, and I'm on a pastoral staff of the church. I'm a student of theology. And so guess what kind of people he brings to me? Mm-hmm. He brings people to me that are prepared to hear and respond uh, to the reasons that I've developed. It's going to be different for everybody. But the whole point is you'll see God doing uh, miraculous things. And uh, you know, part of the reason why I wrote the book is that there's this uh, turn in the- theology at seminaries where people, seminary professors, are claiming the miracles you see in the book of Acts stopped with the first century Christians. But, you know, I remember reading the book of uh, Acts for the first time. I got a chapter in the book on this, and I noticed that the book of Acts just ends. There's no conclusion. And so that implied to me, even when I was uh, 18, reading it for the first time, this is the norm for the Christian life. And so part of my passion for writing Always Be Ready is to make the point the book of Acts is still in operation. And so one of the stories I tell, for example, I was with this brand new Christian young man, and we were just going cold turkey, door to door, talking to people. And uh, we had been doing that uh, all afternoon into the evening. It was now dark. And I said, well, it's not past nine o'clock. Let's go to one more place. And we got to this big gate. And uh, there was a German shepherd dog on the other side. And so we opened the gate, and the dog guided us all the way to the front door. It turned out it was a five-acre estate. So it was a long walk to get to the front door. And we got door, got there and knocked. Uh, the, a man opened the door and said, how did you get here? And we said, well, your dog showed us the way. And he said, didn't you guys see the sign on the gate? It's lit and it's big. We said, we didn't see any sign. He says, well, the sign is warning everybody that there's a trained attack dog on the premises. This dog is trained to bark loudly at anybody who gets close to the gate. And if anybody dares open the gate, the dog is trained to subdue those individuals. You didn't get attacked? The dog didn't bark? I said, no, dog didn't bark. Dog didn't attack us. The dog guided us all the way to your front door. And then he said, are the two of you Christians? And we said, why do you ask? And he says, because my wife and I and our three children have been praying this evening that God would send us Christians so that we would know how we could become followers of Jesus Christ. So he invited us in, and I was able to answer their questions about the Christian faith. And then all five of those family members prayed to receive Jesus Christ as their creator, Lord, and Savior, while their German shepherd dog was sitting beside me. And the man looked at me and said, the dog never sits with a stranger. He only sits with us. And he said, I don't think you two realize what kind of a miracle happened today. And says, I'll show you. He gave a command to the dog. The dog ran out the back door into the chicken coop, roasted out the three roosters, then went back into the chicken coop, and with each chicken, 
would bump the chicken up, grab the egg that was underneath the chicken, then run to the back door and drop it in a basket without breaking a single egg, and did that with all the chickens. And then he took us out to the gate, and there was this big sign lit by a light uh, warning us of the trained attack dog. And he said, I bet you if you saw that sign, you wouldn't have come through the gate. And I said, definitely not. Mm-hmm. And, and the young man with me said, God blinded us to the sign. And as we walked away, he said, this is just like the book of Acts. And indeed it is. Mm-hmm. And that's just one of several stories like that in the book, basically making the point. If you commit yourself as a Christian to share the good reasons that God has given you uh, for your faith in Jesus Christ, you will see similar miracles taking place in your life. And the first two or three times it happens, you'll think it's a coincidence. After it's happened 50 times, you'll know this is God's spirit at work. And I can tell you as a pastor for the past four decades, Christians who have these experiences on a regular basis, their faith gets stronger and stronger, and their demeanor, their Christian demeanor, becomes more and more Christ-like. One of the reasons why God commands us to share our faith is the benefit it brings to us as we share our faith. That's it. To me, it's the best way to strengthen the faith of a believer, get them sharing their faith, and to get them experiencing these Book of Acts kinds of miracles. I was just thinking about your story, and I thought there was something else that we should go back and cover a little bit more. So you can give a proper shout-out to someone very special and give inspiration to others in our work. That, that teacher in the first grade, you went to see her later on in your life. How did that turn out? Well, I was 34 and married at the time, and uh, we were visiting my parents in Vancouver, and my mother said, you know that grade one teacher you had for six weeks? I said, yes. Uh, she wants to have tea with you and your wife. Can I set it up? And I said, sure. So he went over to her apartment. She was 93 at the time. And uh, as I walked in, she had a wall filled with newspaper clippings. She had followed my career. Uh, you know, the science fairs I'd won and things that happened at Caltech papers I wrote. She had that on a wall. And uh, so she said, you were the one pupil I couldn't figure out. You're the only one that went from the bottom of the class to the top of the class in a single year. And because of that, I committed myself to follow your career. And uh, then she said, "Uh, what are you doing now? And I said, well, I was at Caltech, uh, but now I'm uh, working full time for a church as a minister of evangelism. And her jaw dropped and she said, I've been praying all these years that you would use your astronomy and your science for the glory of God. This is an answer to my prayers. I had no idea she was a Christian. She had no idea I was a Christian. And so it was a really joyous experience we had over tea to discover that she had been praying for me all those years and how God had answered her prayers. And, uh, you know, because she was really the first Christian that I came into contact with. And uh, that very first Christian, for some reason, committed herself to pray for me from that time onward. And I argue in the book that probably explains the encounters I had, for example, with that street preacher, or the fact that uh, when I was uh, you know, 12 years old, 
my father quoted a verse from the Bible. He had no idea it was from the Bible. But boy, it got me thinking. The verse he quoted was from Proverbs. There is a way which seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And I remember that that verse just wouldn't leave me. And when I was uh, 16 and 17, it came back and I said, you know, I wonder the path I got carved out for the rest of my life really is the wisest path of my life. And that's when I decided I need to commit myself to see if I can find uh, the cosmic beginner. Mm-hmm. So do you think you'd actually be where you were right now if it wasn't for that one teacher? Uh, definitely not. Mm-hmm. I would have been held back. I would have had to repeat grade one again. And who knows if I would have been able to pass uh, the second pass uh, through grade one. And the other thing I tell in the story is that um, I was born in 1945. <clears throat> and all the children that I was with in that grade one classroom, likewise, were born in 1945. And what's significant about that is that we were born while the war, or we were uh, conceived while the war was still going on. And uh, in 1945, uh, when World War II was happening, there were very few Canadian men in Canada. My father was one of the few exceptions. Uh, All of his brothers uh, went to fight overseas, uh, but he did not. And that's because even though he had grade 10 education, he had taught himself hydraulic engineering. And uh, because of that, he during the war, uh, he was managing a factory. At age 19, they put him in charge of an hydraulics manufacturing plant in Halifax. And uh, they were basically uh, producing the hydraulics for the British Spitfires and later for the bombers uh, that were being used in World War II. So uh, he got a draft exemption because his skills were needed at home uh, to manufacture these uh, sophisticated uh, armaments. And uh, I went to school with children that likewise uh, were born from parents uh, like my dad. And what I found out later when I was at the University of British Columbia, that the Canadians born in 1945 had an average IQ about 20 points higher than those that were born in 1946. And so I would have been immersed in a very different educational experience if I'd been held back uh, an extra year or two. As once I had this very stimulating uh, educational experience. So what would you say, then, to all people out there in the teaching profession in regular school and what would you say, especially about students that I think might seem to be the problem students, as it were? Well, I mean, when I read the Bible, it's commanding us to be a lifelong learner. And, uh, you know, education is supposed to be fun. So uh, find some way to make it fun. And if it's boring, then do something on your own. Mm-hmm. I think that's what you and I did. Yep. Uh, bored in school, so uh, when we were at home... Uh, we went on a different educational route. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I learned way more just from my self-learning than I ever learned at school. And so I would say all children need to experience that. Now, uh, I don't put this in the book, uh, but the public high school I went to, it was filled not only with Canadians, but actually a lot of uh, immigrants, like most of the uh, children and uh, students in the schools I went to 
uh, were born in other countries. And uh, I remember after school, they would have to go to their Ukrainian school or their Hungarian school uh, or their Chinese or Japanese school. I got to go home. They didn't. Uh, and uh, for them, education was different in the sense that it was really regimented. And uh, they didn't really have time to pursue their own uh, interests. So I was the envy of a lot of my peers because I didn't have to go to some special school after normal school. So I actually had time to do the things I wanted to do, uh, like, uh, you know, research variable stars. For me, when I was in Bible college, that's when I first found out about apologetics. And as soon as I did... My fire was lit from that day forward. My mother would panic because I'd come home on a regular basis because I didn't move to the college. I stayed somewhere close at home, which I'm sure you can understand being on the spectrum. And uh, I'd come in with these big stacks of books that I'd just bought at the bookstore. And it's like, how how are you going to have enough room for all these? And... I pretty much only had one class on worldview when I was in Bible college. I, mean, I was reading everything on my own. I was the one student who was complaining about the assigned reading sometimes in classes. I said, I don't, I, it's really hard for me because see, they're giving me all these books they want me to read for class. They're taking me away from all these books that I want to read otherwise in my main area of interest. And when I did get to seminary, I had to take a course actually on on Christian apologetics, a basic introduction course, which most of my friends are looking, you taking this class seriously? What, what's going on there? And like they had uh, six books they wanted us to read when we came into the class. I had to go to the professor and say, I've already read five of these books. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I spend a lot of time reading, and in uh, fact, I, I didn't put this in the book either, but I remember we were on an airplane, and uh, I was reading the Astrophysical Journal, and the lady beside me said, well, what do you read for fun? And I said, well, this is what I read for fun. So <laughs> I can so relate to that one and such. But, you know, before we get into the next hour of the show, because I think this next question could kind of be a long one and such. I'd like to let everyone know that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. we got Dr. Hugh Ross with us here again, talking about a book that he wrote with his wife, Always Be Ready. But if you're here next week, now if you follow my Facebook page, you know one of my favorite statements to say is that I affirm the virgin birth, which I do affirm. There's a whole joke built around it, but yet we're, we're on the time of Christmas, and for virgin birth does have something to do with Christmas. We are going to do a show about for virgin birth. Dr. Richard Schink is going to be my guest, talk about his book, For Virgin Birth of Christ. So if you want to know more about for virgin birth, then I suggest you be listening to this next episode here. Now, Dr. Ross, something that does make me skeptical in some way is that you know I consider myself very well prepared and equipped and such, and I don't really have these encounters at all when I go out in public. I wish I did, but I don't seem to have them. Yeah, <clears throat> a lot of people uh, say that, uh, that, you know, I don't have the encounters you have. And I said, well, yeah, I didn't early on either. I mean, it takes practice. And so that's why I put the story from Ken Samples into the book, because he would say, Hugh, every time you come home for a trip, 
you got this, uh, this amazing story of an encounter with a non-Christian that says, it can't be every time, and uh, you've got to be embellishing. It says, I, I just don't believe it's to that extent. And so I said, well, I noticed, Ken, that we're going to be traveling together uh, in a couple of weeks. Let's see what happens. And so uh, he was with me. Uh, our plane was delayed. And so we're sitting there in the airport. And, uh, you know, my wife called and uh, she was working on uh, a, the Genesis 1 booklet. We were bringing it into a fifth edition. So he's asking me all these questions uh, on my cell phone. And uh, as I put the cell phone down, a man that was seated about 15 feet away came over to us and said, were you talking about Genesis and science? And I said, yes. He said, can I ask you some questions? And I said, sure. And so he uh, quizzed both me and Ken uh, for uh, about 35 minutes, and then we got on the plane. And it turns out that he was a professor of computer science at Stanford University. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was kind of taking a liberal bent on, uh, you know, science and faith issues, not a believer. But when we got on the plane, he was up there in first class. We were at the back of the plane. He got up and walked all the way to the back of the plane and stood in the aisle and talked to us for the entire flight and then talked to us all the way to baggage claim. And then Ken came back to our office and said, I'm no longer a skeptic. I've seen it for myself. And then a few months later, he shared with our staff how it happened to him. He was on an airplane. He struck up a conversation. This time it was with a Christian. And the Christian said, you know, my two favorite Christian authors are uh, you know, Hugh Ross and, uh, oh, gee, it just slipped Walter my mind. Martin. Walter Martin, that's it. It says Hugh Ross and Walter Martin. And uh, Ken said, oh. I used to work for Walter Martin. Now I work for Hugh Ross. And then he said, well, you know, the third most favorite author I have is Ken Samples. Do you know Ken Samples? And so Ken said, well, you're now talking to him. Mm -hmm. So they had a wonderful conversation, but he realized, what are the odds of that happening by chance? So he's now having regular experience as well. But he says, Hugh, your tip, just ask people questions. And, uh, and you'll let people see what you're working on. I mean, I can't tell you how many times uh, people see me writing on my computer or developing a talk. They're watching a movie. They look like they're completely focused on their movie or their video game. Then they'll interrupt me and say, uh, can I ask you some questions about what I see on your computer screen? Uh, what I see there is a lot more interesting than what I'm looking at here. And that'll launch into a conversation. Mm. So. Again, always be ready. And so that verse in 1 Peter 3 basically is a command, look for opportunities. Uh, you never know when they're going to happen. I mean, sometimes it's in really weird circumstances. I remember one time I was in a bank, and uh, they didn't have enough tellers there, so there was 40 of us in this line uh, waiting uh, for help. And so I said, boy, it's going to be a long time before I, I get to the front of the line. So uh, I hauled out a journal from my briefcase and began to go through it. And uh, the gentleman behind me said, what are you reading? And I said, well, I'm reading the Astrophysical Journal. What are you looking for? 
And I says, well, I'm looking for some papers here because I'm working on a, a book on the uh, I'm, I'm writing a book that comments on the book of Job in the Bible. He says, you mean you're going to find something in that journal that connects with the book of Job? And I says, well, I already have. And that began a conversation. And suddenly all 40 of the people in the line were congregated around me to listen to this. And the people at their desks in the bank, they got up from their desks to participate in the conversation as well. You just never know uh, what God's going to do. But if you begin to commit yourself, okay, I want to be ready. I want to be prepared. You'll see God doing things, and you're going to find yourself getting more and more opportunities as time goes on. And incidentally, we're giving away the chapter in the book where I talk about my airplane encounters. We're giving that away for free. Mm-hmm. Just go to reasons.org slash Ross, and uh, you can get that chapter for free. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sniffing, I guess. That great theologian Linus Van Pelt was wrong, partially when he said things to never discuss in public are politics, religion, and the great pumpkin. Probably still shouldn't discuss the great pumpkin, but apparently you should discuss religion in public. Well, I mean, people say, uh, you know, don't people get upset that you're pushing your religion into their face? I said, I don't ever. I mean, I wait till they're asking the questions. And, you know, one thing I made clear in the book, not every stranger I meet is open. And so that's okay. I mean, they're not wanting to get into it. Sometimes, however, I notice when they find out I'm a Christian, they get really angry. Uh, But that tells me, okay, you really don't know me, and you're getting all angry because I'm a Christian. Um, Have you had an unpleasant encounter with a Christian in the past? And that will often open up a conversation. They'll explain where they had really gotten hurt by a Christian in the past, and... uh, or something, my wife tells a story in the book of how she met the student and really angry at God. And so my wife just said, well, tell me about this God you're angry at. And then she did. And my wife's response is, you know, that's not God. That's the God I worship. That's a very different God. Mm-hmm. And it opened up a whole conversation. And uh, it took a year, but a year later, that student gave her life to Christ. You know, I, I am curious about the whole part about asking questions because I mean, that's that seems to be something extremely difficult. If I was with someone else and we got a conversation started, I could handle it then. But to go up and initiate is difficult. I mean, heck, if I get if I'm at the grocery store and there's someone in front of me and they're blocking the way, and I need to get around them and I can't seem to do it, I have a hard time even vocalizing. That request, and you know, I can tell you, I kind of sit there and I stand there and I get my hand raised because you know, like, I'm wanting to say it, but I can't say it and such. So how, how, do, how does this work for you? Well, like if I'm in an airport or standing in line, uh, usually there'll be one person who'll make some comment to the checker or someone behind. And I say, OK, that's someone who's interested in talking. And so I'll ask a question. Uh, but if I'm in a long line of people where nobody is talking and nobody is looking at anybody, that's a signal to me. They don't really want to talk, so I'm not going to bother them. Uh, but if they show the slightest uh, in interest 
and uh, you know, having a conversation. Often it's it's a complaint. You know, we'll, we'll be sitting in an airport, and, and this person beside me just starts complaining uh, about how long we're having to wait. And I said, "Oh, uh, is there an appointment you're going to be late to?" And then they'll talk about how they're going to miss their uh, connection in a hub and so forth. And I'm saying, "Well, uh, uh, what do you do for a living uh, that that makes it this this critical?" And so they'll tell me what they do. And I'll start asking them more questions. And one thing I've noticed, too, if you ask enough questions, people eventually ask you a question. And when they find out I'm a scientist uh, and I'm interested in theology, I write books, they say, gee, can I ask you some questions? And so, uh, again, the key is look for opportunities. And again, I just basically say, okay, First Peter 3, always be prepared. Not every person is going to be an opportunity, but be ready for when it is. And so, you know, one of the stories we write in the book is I was with my wife after a speaking engagement. I've been speaking for four and a half hours nonstop. Uh, I was tired. It was 1130 at night. <clears throat> but for some reason, my wife wanted me to go into the supermarket and uh, get some stuff. And I says, you know, we can wait. We don't need that right now. Why don't we just go home? And this is not like Kathy. She got extremely insistent that I go in that store and get the three items she wanted. And I recognize, look, this is not rational, uh, but I'm going to do what she asked me to do. So I walk into the store, and as soon as I walk in, this woman from a good 40, 50 feet away starts screaming. She says, it's you, it's you, it's you. And then I look at her and says, oh, uh, you're in my Bible study. And she says, yes, I came into the store, had a big fight with my husband, and uh, I just said, I got to leave, and told him I was never coming back, but I needed some items uh, for my drive away. And then I saw you and realized I can't leave my husband like that. She literally repented on the spot. And then she says, I told her what happened with my wife. She says, I got to go talk to her. And so she came to the car and basically said, the Holy Spirit used me to get me to stop doing something I was committed to do that would have ruined my life and ruined my family. Thank you for listening to the Holy Spirit and being so insistent to get you to go into that store. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that I, I often do wish that kind of thing would happen. Much more often in my life. It, it doesn't seem to happen. Especially, I, I will say your book definitely got me excited about the possibility of it happening because, you know, it'd be, it'd be great to be able to have adventures like that. Of course, my, my great concern for me would be if I had started having those adventures, I could get pride for it. But I think there could be a way about that. It's actually very humbling, isn't there? Yes. And, uh, <clears throat> You know, Nick, it will happen to you. Mm -hmm. And you know, I tried to make it clear in the book, this wasn't happening all the time for me 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. This is a process. Uh, you know, as you begin to do this, uh, God's going to work on your character. And that's the thing I've noticed, is that it's people who've worked hard on developing a Christ-like character that get more opportunities. So that's part of it. And so I have a little section in the book about how do you build that gentleness and respect and a clear conscience uh, that will be attractive to non-Christians. And um, my response is, 
when you're sharing your faith with a non-Christian, get feedback. And just say, you know, uh, I want to find out from you if there's anything I've shared with you that you think is disturbing or obnoxious. And if you humble yourself like that, they will give you good tips. And, uh, you know, it can be pretty disturbing what they tell you about your obnoxious behavior, but it helps you the next time you have an encounter. Mm -hmm. uh, So it's simply a matter of practice. I'm a lot older than you are. Mm -hmm. So uh, it will happen. And, uh, you know, it was slow to start with for me, but I notice as you continue to put into practice 1 Peter 3.15, you get more and more opportunities. Mm -hmm. Because after all, I make the point in the book, uh, where Jesus says the workers are few. There's only a few in the body of Christ that are really prepared to commit themselves to this degree. And because there's only a few, God's going to use the few that are available. And so one of the reasons why I wrote the book, you know, as a minister in a church, I recognize that only about 10% of the Christians that regularly attend church share their faith with non-Christians. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to complete the Great Commission, we got to get that percentage up to 60, 70, 80%. And basically, my passion for writing the book, this is way too much fun not to be involved. Mm-hmm. So it's a challenge I'm making to Christians. Uh, get out of the stands and onto the playing field. I mean, you could watch other Christians have these experiences, but you need to have them yourself. And uh, also, it's, it's such a faith builder when you realize the Holy Spirit's working through you uh, to have these encounters with non-Christians. And it's a wonderful experience, and I want every Christian to have those experiences. And so I want to get that percentage up. And people ask me, well, why did you wait so long to write this book? Well, you know, first part of First Peter 3 Always be prepared with good reasons. So I've dedicated the last three decades of my life to producing books and videos and other resources, basically laying out those good reasons. Because what I discovered as a minister in our church, the number one reason why people don't share their faith, they're not equipped. They don't have good reasons. And they know that if they share their faith, they're going to be embarrassed. People are going to bring up things they haven't thought about. And, you know, if you get embarrassed all the time you share your faith or get ridiculed, you're going to stop sharing your faith. So step one, develop those good reasons. But that's why reasons to believe exist. We exist to provide you with those good reasons. Mm-hmm. So, for example, uh, I tell a story in the book of a woman we know. She's not read any of my books but she's given away over 300 copies of my books. She knows so it's what she does. She meets non-Christians, she talks to them, finds out what kind of non-Christian they are, and then leaves them with one of my books. Now she basically figures out which book they need to read, and she says, I'm having amazing impact bringing people to Christ. Even though I don't understand this content myself or have a motivation to read it, I just know it works. And so she always carries a gigantic purse around with her uh, filled with resources uh, from our Reasons to Believe organization. Mm-hmm. Now, you talk about developing character and such, and I'm sure you can agree with me on this. That one of the number one agents for us used to develop that character in us is our wives. 
They seem to have a great big insight into us. And part of it, your story in the book is how Kathy came into your life. You you and her have been on the show before to talk about your marriage and what it's like. Okay. But could you give a little bit for the people listening who haven't got to listen to that show yet? What's the story of you and Kathy Drake? Well, um, I was at Caltech. And uh, that's where I got to meet a really dedicated Christian for the first time, Dave Rogstad. We actually dedicated the book to Dave. And uh, uh, Dave was the one that showed me how to find a church. I got involved in that church. And uh, I started teaching a class there. And I was uh, leading two home Bible studies for new Christians. And actually was involved in planting a church. And Dave came to me one day and said, uh, Hugh, there's this Bible study that you need to go to. It's filled with young professionals. They're all raised in Christian homes. Half of them are preparing for full-time Christian careers, but they really don't know how to evangelize. You need to go there and show them how to do it. And I says, Dave, I'm way too busy with all these other studies. I'm already working with these new Christians and showing them how to lead people to Christ. He says, no, you need to go to this study. Uh, but I just said, no, I, I'm too occupied as it is. Then he came to me one day and said, I told them you're coming. And so I said, OK, I guess I got to go. So I went to the study on my bicycle. And indeed, it was just like he said, it was filled with all these young professionals. Half of them were married. Half of them were single. Indeed, half of them were preparing to be pastors or theologians uh, or Christian counselors and, uh, yeah, they were not uh, really equipped to do evangelism. Their whole focus was the Christian community. But I came back from that, and Dave said, did you meet someone called Kathy there? I said, well, there are three Kathys. And so he said, well, describe them all to me. He says, no, none of them are what I'm thinking of. Well, it wasn't until uh, several weeks later that the Kathy he was thinking of really did show up. And uh, I remember she came to me right afterwards and said, you're from Caltech. And uh, you're an astrophysicist, but from what I could hear tonight, you really believe that the Bible is inspired and accurate in everything it says. What do you do with Genesis? And I says, well, the first few chapters of Genesis were a big factor in my coming to faith in Christ. They were the first biblical texts I read, and I realized all the science was accurate, and it was way ahead of uh, Moses, the author, and so that was my first clue that this book was different from all the other holy books. Then she shared her story about how her brother uh, was a youth leader in the church, went to seminary, then came back and told Kathy and her parents, the Bible is not true. Science proves that it's not true. And, uh, you know, Kathy said, well, I know it's true. And he says, well, you've just been conditioned. Uh, you'll discover that it's all uh, just simply a bunch of stories. Um, so she was looking for reasons uh, to believe the science. And so I actually wound up talking to her brother. And uh, as soon as I brought up the subject of science and Genesis, he knew who he was. He changed the subject. He had other reasons for disbelieving. That was important for Kathy to find out. Then I lost touch with Kathy because she changed jobs she was now an English professor at a junior college, and so she wasn't coming to the study. Uh, but I remember about a year later, I got a phone call from her, 
and she basically explained how she needed to be trained in evangelism. And the church that she was attending really didn't offer any training. And uh, she said, I heard from one of my friends that you do uh, evangelism training. Can I sign up for the course? And I said, sure, you can come Saturday to this address. So she showed up, and I gave her a clipboard, and I said, we're going out in teams, and we're going to be knocking on doors. She said, isn't there any training? And I said, well, you've been studying the Bible since you were four. Uh, I think you're all set. And says, well, don't worry. Uh, I always go with the new person first. You're coming with me. And so uh, we knock on this one door, and uh, the uh, couple, they invite us in. Turns out they were Jehovah's Witnesses. And uh, Kathy was amazed because the Jehovah's Witnesses were trying to convert me. Uh, But I had a Bible with me, and every time they would quote a passage, I would uh, turn them to some other passages. Uh, explaining how the Bible taught the doctrine of the Trinity and that Jesus was a fully God. And uh, this went on for literally two and a half hours. And she walked away and said, wow, you've not been studying the Bible as long as I have, and yet you were able to go toe-to-toe with these Jehovah's Witnesses. And it says, well, uh, I actually went through the entire Bible, reading it for texts that I would need when I would share my faith. And she says, well, that's what I need to do. So she started doing that. The next time she showed up, I put her with a brand new Christian. And she says, what do you mean? I said, well, you're trained now. Uh, I'm going to put you with this new Christian. Well, she went out with that new Christian. They knocked on a door. A teenage girl invited them in. And uh, this new Christian gave her testimony and basically asked this uh, teenage girl, uh, do you have any questions? She had a bunch of questions. Uh, Then the new Christian said, would you like to do what I did? And she looked at them and says, yes, I would. So she prayed to receive Christ right there. And Kathy said, all the stories I heard, it's happening to me too. And so, uh, but then she says, she noticed that I had some issues. And uh, that's where she said, you know, uh, this material you're writing, uh, you need to use less four and five syllable words. And your sentences go on for 40 or 50 words. Do you mind if I work with you to edit your material uh, so that people who aren't Caltech scientists can actually follow it? I said, sure. And so that began a friendship. That friendship went on for two and a half years. And uh, the church noticed uh, the skills that she was developing. And uh, I was full time in the church staff at that time. And so the church basically had the two of us because we were both single and they said, there's certain couples we want you to uh, go to, because the church had a ministry of going to uh, couples that were having problems in their marriage. And uh, they just felt that for certain people, they needed the objectivity of somebody who wasn't married to talk to them. So we were actually doing marriage counseling um, long before we were dating one another. But what we discovered is uh, in the process of that marriage counseling, all these couples we were talking to thought we were married. And then when they found out we weren't, they said, well, why not? And so that got me thinking. And uh, But um, for some reason, Kathy was ignoring all of my attempts to try to get her attention. I later found out that I was ignoring all of her attempts to get my attention. I guess that's part of being on the autistic spectrum. So I had to write her a letter. 
And I wrote her a letter. She wrote a letter back, and that was the beginning of our relationship. Uh, we dated for about uh, eight or nine months, uh, got engaged, and got married a few months after that. And uh, we've been married ever since. Yeah, I know when it came to me, my wife, at we started communicating, and there was no intention to date and marry, and yet we were married within a year's time. But, wow. Um, before uh, we go on, I would like to let everyone know you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, and everything we do here is supported by people like you. And I, I really do encourage you to give it. Things have been very hard for us here lately. There's a lot going on, a lot of stuff I really don't want to share, but it is important stuff here and such. And we could use your support, so go to my website, deeperwatersapologetics.com. There's a link, help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. And if you click on that link, you get taken to the ministry of Risen Jesus. Have you gone to the right place? Yes, you have. That's the ministry of my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. So you make your donation, get in touch with me or Mike or Debbie or Ari, and give us... And make your donation after you make your donation. Meaning, say, hey, I made my donation. I want to go to Nick Pierce. I want to go to Deeper Waters. We'll get that donation. It will be tax deductible. You can also go buy some ebooks that I've written or co written. Written is Creed for the Ages, the Apostles' Creed, and today's Christian. Co written include ones like Defy and Inerrancy, Groundness, God and Natural Disasters, The Mention of Bars book, which seems to be very popular right now. And most recently released just this past week, Contextualizing Inerrancy. And also, we have a jewelry store. You can go and you can buy some jewelry. And whatever you purchase, 25% of that will go to deeper waters. So like I tell you guys out there, you can buy something special of that lady in your life to make up that screw up that you recently did with her. Or you can buy something special that lady in your life to make up that screw up that I know you're going to make with her. And if you can't read these, please go on iTunes and leave a positive review of the Deeper Waters podcast. Now, Dr. Ross, do you have an organization or charity you'd like to see people donate to? Yes, I'm the uh, president and founder of Reasons to Believe. Uh, We've been active for the past 33 years. But yeah, I mean, uh, 90% of our income is from uh, uh, individuals, donations from individuals. And so, uh, but if they go to reasons.org, they'll literally see tens of thousands of articles that they can read and they can use in their own personal witness. But, but uh, yeah, if they'd like to support Reasons to Believe, we'd very much appreciate that, especially since uh, we now have a goal set by our board of directors to build up a community of a scientist evangelist. And we got 70 that are involved in the community right now. Our goal is to get that up to 300. Because I think if we can build that kind of an army of scientists, evangelists, that could have a dramatic impact on American academia, and for that matter, the whole of the country. I agree with you entirely, Erin. Let's get back to the, the book, though, and what's going on in it. And there, what would you say to churches that really aren't taking evangelism so seriously? Because let's face it, many of them aren't. I mean, something that concerns me sometimes is when I'm driving through here and I see a church, a good Orthodox Christian church, 
Orthodox Religion, oh, by the way, and right next to it, a Mormon church, or a Kingdom Hall, and I'm thinking, those two don't make sense. Why is it for Mormons don't aren't even scared at all to build next to a Christian church unless they don't think we're a threat to them at all? Yeah, that's a good question. And uh, again, uh, that's been my passion, is to really get people who aren't Christians sharing their faith. And, and, you know, we should be embarrassed. Look at the commitment that Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses have to share their false doctrines. Mm -hmm. Uh, We got the truth. Why aren't we active like they are? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, people say, well, isn't it obnoxious to go door to door? And I says, well, you don't have to be obnoxious. Uh, We would go door to door. People didn't want to talk. We would leave them alone. Um, And I actually give some clues on how to make that work. Number one, don't mention your church. If you've got an ulterior motive in going to talk to strangers, uh, that will come across and the people will will, uh, consider that uh, to be ulterior motive and obnoxious. So we never mention our church. We only mention if people ask us, well, what church do you go to? We're not here to promote our church. Uh, We're here to find out the spiritual state of the neighborhood and what kind of questions you have. Make yourself available. We don't preach. Uh, so I think that's a key, and I would argue that's a key for church. Because as I talk to non-Christians, uh, their number one complaint about church, it's sermons with no opportunity to engage. You know, we we sing songs that we're not ready to sing, um, and they you know non-Christians typically don't sing. And uh, they're okay with prayer, but not congregational prayer, where people are praying for one another's needs. That makes them uncomfortable. And people say, well, what can you do to make the church more attractive to these folks? Well, the church right pastor, we tell people, if you've got a non-Christian friend who doesn't have a church background, don't bring them to the worship service. Bring them to an adult class. And we structure our classes where people can interrupt any time and ask questions. Uh, You make sure there's good refreshments. Make sure the classes are not too small and not too large. If the class is too small, the non-Christians are too exposed. If the class is too big, they don't have the right uh, enough opportunity to engage. So it's the right size of the class. And one thing I've been sharing with pastors, every church I know, Uh, where the message, sermon if you want to call it that, is followed by an open mic Q&A where people in the congregation can ask any question they want and the question uh, will be uh, entertained, Uh, not privately one-on-one, but publicly. Uh, Churches that do that are growing by adult converts. So, for example, when people invite me to speak in a church, I say, how about if I don't speak 30 minutes or 40 minutes, but I speak 20 or 30, and we leave the rest of the time for Q&A. And if they have three services, I say, why don't after the third service, uh, we meet in a place where people can bring their lunch, and we'll have a whole hour and a half of a Q&A. And incidentally, when there's uh, three or four services in the church, I always ask the church if I can give a different message at each uh, service. Why? Because I know it takes more than one message to really intrigue the curiosity of most uh, non-Christians who have not been to church. In fact, one of the stories I tell in the book is about this woman who had been trying to get her husband 
to go to church for 20 years. And finally, she said, well, there's a scientist speaking at the church, and he's actually going to have questions, allow you to ask questions. And he reluctantly agreed to go to the first service. He says, I want to go to the service that has the fewest people there where I can sit at the back. So he sat at the very back and uh, told his wife, if I don't like it, I, I want to be able to get up and leave. Well, he really liked it. And uh, so he got engaged in the Q&A. And uh, then he told his wife, I want to stay for the second service. This time he was in the front row because uh, he wanted to be, make sure he'd have a chance to ask questions. He went to all the services. And I remember talking to the wife after the last service. She says, for 20 years I've been trying to get him to come to church. Now I can't get him to leave. Well, the problem is the church that he was being exposed to was a church that wasn't really helping him with the questions he had. It wasn't that he was opposed to the Christian faith. He was opposed to the style of Christianity. He was So I have a couple of chapters in the book on how churches can make their uh, facilities and their people more inviting to non-Christians. There's a way you can really get evangelism happening in the church. But the bottom line of the book is most evangelism is supposed to take place outside the church, not in the church. Yeah, I think that is a big problem that people think if you want to get someone to be a Christian, whereby guy, you just get them to church and let the pastor do it. And the thing is, pastors aren't usually preaching those kinds of sermons. They're teaching a lot of fluff, as far as I'm concerned, and just moralistic sermons on how to be a good person. And such, And there's not really evangelism going on even in the church. Well, I tell pastors that you know you need to address controversial subjects. Non-Christians are not going to come to hear things that they consider to be boring. And so you need to take on the difficult biblical texts. And uh, you need to be teaching people stuff they haven't heard before. Mm-hmm. And again, emphasize, open my Q&A on any topic. Um, you know, that way, if the non-Christian isn't too interested in your sermon, he might be interested in bringing something else up, and it might actually show you what you need to be teaching on in your next sermon. Uh, so you'll let the audience help guide you in what you're going to prepare. And when, what I've discovered is pastors who do that, they actually enjoy their ministry a lot more than they did before. And pastors tell me, well, look, I'm not prepared to answer all these questions. I said, who says you got to do it by yourself? I'm, there's probably an engineer in the audience or a medical doctor uh, or someone who's uh, studied uh, theology in a way you haven't, haven't come up with you. Uh, you can have a panel fielding questions. And it's always okay. It actually communicates humility to the audience when you say, that's a good question. I have no idea how to answer that question. How about if we research that question? Mm-hmm. I mean, what I like to do in the uh, skeptics class I teach is when a question comes up that's really challenging is I like to recruit the non-Christian to join us in researching that subject to see if we can come up with a good answer. You know, it always amazes me how non-Christians really enjoy the fact that they get invited to join us in pursuing an answer to the question. Yeah. 
I think one of the best churches we've ever been to, if not the best, was when we were in Knoxville. And a pastor actually had something set up. And this happened with every single speaker there. But during the message, there was a number. And you could send a text message to that number. And you could text in a question. And after the service, the pastor would come out and answer that question. So now you might say, this question is long. I'm going to put up a video log later this week that will answer that question. That's the kind of thing churches need to be doing. Because he said it's hard to get non-Christians to come to church if they're, they hear the same things that they hear everywhere else. It's hard to get Christians to come to church. Because I usually just sit in services bored as can be. Right, right. <clears throat> yeah, church shouldn't be boring. It should be the most fascinating thing that you could attend in the course of your week. And, uh, you know, pastors need to take that to heart. And, uh, again, you don't, I mean, I talk about what I call the senior pastor syndrome, which is the idea that the senior pastor has to be an expert on everything going on in the church. Well, if you read Ephesians 4, ministry in the church is to be a team. It's not one person. And so, ideally, you've got a whole uh, community of a, uh, teachers and leaders in the church that uh, participate in the ministry. And what it tells us in Ephesians 4, the role of the ministers is to equip the people in the church for ministry, not to do the ministry, but to equip the people they're teaching to do the ministry. Now, of course, they're involved, because if you're going to equip people for ministry, you've got to show them by your example. I've, I've had this idea of, I think, churches, we can have youth ministers. We can have ministers of worship. We have all these ministers. How come we don't have ministers of apologetics? That's something that I think we could really benefit. If churches had ministers designed for their whole purpose was to help answer questions. Well, I tell a story again in the book of the, the church I got involved in. It's close to Caltech and the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. We're also close to the headquarters of the Skeptic Society, mm-hmm. and also to Fuller Seminary. So we get an interesting mix of people. Um, but I was actually the second person brought on staff at the church. So there was a senior pastor, and I was brought on as a minister of evangelism. And so when I speak to pastors, I say, you know, that really should be your top priority hire. Um, that should be the second or third position you fill in the church, because that's the role of the church. Uh, is to take the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ uh, to an unbelieving world. And so this needs to be part of your pastoral team. But you're right, often they'll hire a youth pastor or several youth pastors, uh, a worship leader, a discipleship leader, a women's ministry leader, a men's ministry leader, and even churches that have a pastoral staff of uh, 15 ministers will not have a minister of apologetics or a minister of evangelism. So part of my reason for writing the book, uh, we're hoping to be able to give the book to a number of pastors. Uh, We haven't got that funded yet, but that's one of our goals, because my whole point is, uh, you know, pastors really need to reinvigorate their churches with the mission of evangelism and apologetics. But I also think one reason why they're leery of apologetics There are a lot of apologists out there, as I'm sure you're well aware, Nick, uh, that tend to be aggressive and uh, pugnacious and a little bit in your face. And, uh, you know, 
pastors are aware of those individuals, and so they're basically saying, I don't want to touch apologetics with a 10-foot pole. And uh, that's where I think uh, we who are professional apologists really need to work on being more gracious, uh, more compassionate in the way we do our apologetics. Because if we're, you know, what I explain is that 1 Peter 3 makes the point. Number one, you need to have good reasons. Number two, you need to have a Christian demeanor. Non-Christians typically will listen more to your demeanor than they will your words. So if all you got are the evidences, uh, the good reasons, without the demeanor, you're not going to get very far. So that second part of 1 Peter 3.15 is really critical. And what I find in my church, for example, that building in the evangelism training, where we really stress how to develop that demeanor, uh, that wins a lot of accolades from the rest of the pastoral staff. So I think we apologists uh, need to look inside where we have been offensive or too aggressive. And, uh, you know, it is true that a lot of Christians aren't sharing their faith because they're not bold. Uh, But what I notice in the Bible, it commands us to be courageous, but also compassionate and loving and gracious and humble. There isn't a contradiction between courage and humility. They're meant together. And we can definitely say one of the great cost of this is the youth of a church. Because you and I both know they are getting questions about your area of science and my area of history consistently. And if a church isn't answering this, then they're not ready. The Babylon Bee, the great Christian satire site on Facebook, had a story maybe a month or two ago about a, the church group sends a young girl out into college that they never ever gave her any preparation for whatsoever. And that's right. sadly accurate. Well, the number one reason why Christian youth leave the church and never return is because there's no, uh, no facility for asking questions. The top two reasons are can't ask hard questions and nobody addresses the science-faith issues. So that's one of the things we're trying to stress here, is that God gave us two books, the book of nature and the book of scripture. And part of evangelism is using the book of nature to bring people to the book of scripture. But if I could go back to the apologetics thing, I see a lot of my fellow apologists doing apologetics for apologetics sake. And I think you've heard about these groups in the church that we refer to as apologetics junkies. That's all they want to talk about. What I think we need to do, or professional apologists, is really show people how to use the apologetics for evangelism. And reasons to believe the only apologetics we develop is the apologetics that's got a proven track record in bringing people to faith in Jesus Christ. And so there's a lot of apologetics that doesn't have an evangelistic uh, effect. And uh, in my opinion, that's not apologetics. It's just stuff we can argue about as Christians. I know my ministry partner wrote an article once, I think for a Christian research journal, about how when apologetics was evangelism, the right. two went hand in hand. And right. Such. I mean, my great hopes is, for instance, we've got someone, we live in an apartment complex, we've got someone who comes in, does some repairs for us from time to time, and they're 
a Muslim, and they saw I have the Quran out one time. So we're trying to arrange a time for us to get together, and I've already told them, like, it, when we get together and discuss this, you need to be ready, okay? Because I do discuss, take those discussions very seriously, so I'll be ready. Well, good for you. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so what's your ultimate hope with this book? Well, my ultimate hope is that people would realize there's a God out there that's not a distant God. He's a God that wants to be personally involved in your life. I mean, the Holy Spirit wants to actually be partnered with us. Mm-hmm. And that Holy Spirit is prepared to equip us in miraculous ways so we can be more effective in sharing our faith. And to recognize that through sharing our faith according to biblical principles, it's going to change us. I mean, God's got resources. He doesn't really need us to send the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ out to the world. He could send his angels. His angels are not sinners like we are. And so if he was wanting a perfect presentation of the gospel, he's got the resources. The reason he chooses us sinful human beings is he knows the process of sharing our faith is going to help us overcome the sin that's within us. It's just as much for our benefit as it is for God's benefit and the benefit of the people we share with. And I think if we can appreciate that as Christians, uh, that's going to uh, motivate us uh, to get the proper uh, preparation and to actually get involved in sharing your faith. And as I emphasize at the end of the book, is this is way too much fun. You don't want to miss out. If you don't do it, God's going to find some other Christian to do it. But why do you want to miss out? This is going to be the thrill of your life. Um, so, you know, get out of the stands and get out of the playing field. Don't just be a spectator. Actually be a player. Well, uh, I suspect there could be some people out there that aren't the kind of apologetic junkies you and I are saying. What makes this so much fun exactly? I don't think being asked hard questions and being in debates and that kind of thing is a lot of fun. Well, it's fun in this sense. Like, you know, people say, Hugh, you don't seem to ever get stumped. And I said, well, I've been stumped plenty of times. And I'm stumped even uh, when I'm sharing my faith after all these uh, decades. Is that when a really difficult question gets up and you say, gee, I don't have a good answer for it, that's an opportunity for study. Mm -hmm. And the time I've dug into it, it's been, wow, this is such a great opportunity In fact, I've gone back to non-Christians and said, you know, when you asked me that question, it motivated me to study. I have an answer for you, but more than that, this has had a huge impact on my life. I just want to share with you how much you asking me that question has benefited me personally. And I like to do that before I share with them the answer I came up with. So, yeah, God uses these encounters. And so, but basically, you know, God is not giving us the spirit of fear. When people come up with something, you say, gee, I just don't have an answer for that. You know, I don't know how I, that fits in with my Christian faith. A chance to study and, uh, and also be patient. What I notice when I read the Psalms of David, he would come to God with really hard questions and God would make him wait. God wanted him to wrestle with these issues. But God referred to David as a man after his own heart because David would not give up. 
-hmm. He would keep coming to God until he got the answer he wanted. Mm -hmm. God expects us to work hard. And so a lot of the answers, I remember, for example, when I was in my early 20s, I had some big questions about the Christian faith that didn't get answered until a decade later. And so but that whole process really was for my benefit. Yeah, I, I, I'm also thinking about a, something that a Peter craved in Terseri said in their book, I can't remember his first name, but their book... The Handbook of Christian Projects is the same that's always stuck with me. Maybe it's because, I mean, I'm always someone who likes to watch these superhero movies and TV shows and such, and playing those kinds of games and such, and that's, apologetics is the closest you come to saving the world. Say that last one again. Apologetics is the closest you come to saving the world. Yes. Yeah, and I like the fact that God wants to involve us. Again, I make the point, God doesn't need us, he chooses us. And uh, so it's like, he's inviting us to be part of his team. Uh, why would anyone want to turn that down? Mm-hmm. And I, I know from my end that, I, I find it interesting when I engage with skeptics regularly online and such, it seems like their arguments never seem to change. They never seem to improve. It's always the same old thing, but every single time... It gets me to go and improve my arguments more and more. So it gets easier and easier every single time. I mean, have I been stumped a few times? Yeah, but it happens less and less often. Well, you bring up an interesting point. One way you can be better prepared to share your faith is uh, social media. Yep. I mean, uh, I look at my uh, Twitter and uh, Facebook pages as ministry. I don't tell people what I'm eating for breakfast. I basically address people on their issues uh, concerning the Christian faith. And particularly Twitter really attracts a lot of non-Christians, a lot of skeptics. And it's a great way to uh, better prepare. Although I do tell you, it's hard to answer really challenging questions on quantum gravity and God in 288 characters. Yeah. Uh, I, I do try and share some funny stuff and such on Facebook and Anyone watches me on Facebook, as I'm sure you can hear from Kathy, I've put messages up to my wife on a regular basis there. And, but honestly, if it wasn't for ministry opportunity, I could probably just ditch Facebook and be fine in my life. But that's where I go in order to get some good discussion in. Well, you know, social media is a way that you can engage thousands of people just from your desk. So, uh, and I've seen a lot of ministry happen on social media. I mean, people who are very uh, aggressive, mocking atheists, you keep engaging them, and eventually, I mean, sure, there are trolls out there who aren't going to listen to anything you say, but it's hard to tell the trolls from the non-trolls, but I find that there's a number of them that if you actually engage them, they begin to take you seriously, and you have a serious conversation, and then the Holy Spirit begins to work and turn them completely around. And so it's fun just to see people put posts on my Facebook page telling me how a particular conversation or post brought them to faith in Christ. It is something that social media is really changing the sort of dynamic. I mean, even what you and I are doing right now, we're taking two hours of our day here on a Saturday afternoon, and chances are these two hours will help several people 
we've never even met and never will meet this side of eternity that I'll share this on my website and hopefully you'll share it at Reasons to Believe and someone will listen and they'll pass it on and things like that. But this two hours could equal work for thousands of hours for all we know. Yeah, it could. I mean, uh, YouTube is another thing. I noticed that in videos that we post there, they get a lot of attention from unbelievers. Mm-hmm. So uh, the 21st century is an amazing time in which to live. And uh, we talk about what's it going to take to complete the Great Commission. Well, I think the technology we have today, the Internet, uh, is going to be a big factor in getting the good news of salvation to all the people groups of the world. I mean, to give you an example, uh, the Sunday school class I teach, uh, we have about uh, 1,200 that download the uh, uh, MP3s, and uh, over half of the people that download our MP3s are in the People's Republic of China. Americans is not our biggest audience. Mm -hmm. And who would have even thought about that being possible 30, 40 years ago? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, we put our shows up on YouTube as well, and when I've gone through, I've clicked sometimes to see which one gets the most views, and actually, one of the ones, the ones that got the most views, by far, I mean, I think this one has 10 times more than anyone else, reaching into 10,000 or so, is the one I did with you on Rosh Hashanah. I mean, that one... Uh, I'm not sure what to make of it. Part of me thinks it's great message getting out there, but then part of me thinks it seems kind of sad that the one that gets the most attention is one about something like that because, you know, end time stuff, sales wear and such. Yeah, it does. So, but I mean, that's the message to us, too. Yeah. It's that, uh, you know, non Christians uh, actually like to hear what we have to say about end times prophecy. Uh, they like to hear what we got to say about the abortion issue, mm-hmm. uh, marriage and divorce and gender issues. They like to hear what we got to say about cosmology and the quantum mechanics. So I think we need to be building that into our church. And people say, well, where's all that in the Bible? Well, wait a minute. God gave us two books, the book of nature and the book of scripture. Mm-hmm. And one thing I talk about and always be ready is the impact that you have when you take people away from the church and actually give them a spiritual experience in a natural setting. Get them up into the mountains or the beach or at a lake where they actually get to see nature. Uh, that's part of the book of nature. It's not just heavy-duty science. It's actually getting them into a natural realm. And in particular, I've noticed the impact when I've taken Caltech uh, scientists who are committed atheists, get them into an alpine meadow, And I simply ask them the question, what do you think of this place? They'll say, well, it's gorgeous beyond description. And I have a follow-up question. Why is this place so beautiful? And it always opens up a spiritual conversation. In fact, I remember one atheist scientist I took up into the Sierra Nevada mountains. We're sitting around this campfire looking at the beautiful setting. And he says, this is weird. I'm an atheist, but I think I'm having a spiritual experience now. What's going on? And so that led to a conversation. Those kinds of conversation will not happen in an office building in a downtown core. And, uh, you know, I often make the point that people lived thousands of years ago in one context knew more about science than scientists at major universities. 
because mm-hmm. they're in contact with the natural realm. Mm-hmm. And in particular, a book I wrote previously, Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job, making the point that birds and mammals that have not had contact with humans, that have not been abused by humans, behave very differently than the animals we normally see around us. And really makes the point that these animals were designed to serve and please humans, and God motivated them to seek us out. You don't see that with animals that have been abused by us. They're afraid of us instead of coming towards us. But to actually see these animals behave the way that God intended, it's like, isn't this interesting? These animals are motivated to serve a higher species. Well, guess what? God designed us humans to serve and please and relate to a higher being. And as our sin causes these animals to run away from us, our sin also causes us to pretend that God doesn't exist or to run away from us. Mm. Nature teaches us lessons. You know, the heavens declare the glory of God, but if you're living in downtown Shanghai, the heavens declare nothing because uh, the lake pollution and the air pollution is so intense, you can't see a single star. Uh, but Abraham could see 15,000 stars with the naked eye. He could see the Milky Way in all of its glory. And I think one thing that saddens me as an astronomer, for the first time in human history, the majority of the world's population has not seen the Milky Way. Mm. You know, Dr. Ross, there's so much more I could say that, but time constraints have come upon us. The book is always be ready. And like, like I tell you people, honestly, when I get up start, I was saying it'd just be basic stuff, nothing new, good work by Hugh, but nothing to write home about too much. I was very wrong. This is probably the one by him that I have enjoyed the most, so it gives it gets that kind of endorsement from me. The book is available on Amazon right now. At time of recording here, the the um, paperback is nineteen ninety five, and the Kindle version is nine ninety nine. Now, Dr. Ross, do you have any? Uh, do you have a blog or website where people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? Sure. <clears throat> I put out an article every week called Today's New Reason to Believe, always taking some st- new scientific discovery and showing how it gives us more evidence for the Christian faith. Reasons.org is all about showing you brand new reasons to believe in Jesus Christ as greater Lord and Savior. And yes, you can get a free chapter of Always Be Ready, by going to reasons.org slash Ross. So you can kind of taste it for yourself and see whether you want to get the whole book. Do you have any final thoughts today you'd like to leave for Deeper Waters podcast? Yes. Always be prepared to give good reasons for your hope in Jesus Christ with gentleness, respect, and a clear conscience. And you'll see God do amazing things in your life and the life of others. Yeah. Dr. Ross, I'd like to thank you for coming back on, and I definitely hope it's not for the last time, but we will see you back here again sometime. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. And I'd like to remind everyone that next week we're going to have Dr. Richard Schink coming on, talking about his book, The Virgin Birth of Christ, which I do affirm. Until then, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off. Mm-hmm.